Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, October 31st, 2022. This year, we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. I'm Guy Eero, and it's Halloween, so we're going to be getting troglobitic in the Lone Star State talking about some <laughs> Texas blind cats. I'm really looking forward to this episode. This is one, you know, when Katrina and I are trying to find episodes, there's lots of ways that we come into them, but we just had one space left in the year. We were looking at it and Katrina asked me, Guy, what's the one fish or group of fishes you want to talk about? I just choose one. And I'm like, it's got to be the blind cats. And luckily, we were able to get this guest uh, to agree to talk to us. <laughs> okay. And I'm really happy to introduce our guest, Dean Henriksen, curator of ichthyology at the University of Texas's Biodiversity Center, and also a blind cat enthusiast. And since it's Halloween, can I also say Satan enthusiast <laughs> for the genus of the species? You got yeah. it. Yep. That's me. Okay, we're really pleased to have you on the show and excited to learn about the North American blind cats and also what's swimming beneath San Antonio because Satan is not alone down there, is he? No, definitely not. So in Texas, there are three species of blind catfishes. Two of them live deep under San Antonio in the Edwards Aquifer and in another part of the Edwards Aquifer, which is connected to the part from San Antonio is the Mexican blind cat, which just barely gets into Texas as far as we know so far. Most of its distribution is in Mexico, specifically in the adjoining state of Coahuila. But in Texas, there are just those three, Mexican blind cat, wide mouth blind cat, and the toothless blind cat. You mentioned that Satan, which is the wide mouth blind cat. Yeah. My mama would get on my case <laughs> if we didn't ask where this Satan name came from. It's actually quite simple. So the species was described by two rather famous ichthyologists back in the 1940s is when they described it. And it was Carl Hubbs, a very well-known ichthyologist, and yeah. his buddy at University of Michigan, Bailey. So they described the species. And you think of it, it lives deep underground. It's this strange, devilish-looking critter. You know, it's a nasty predator in this crazy environment that's unstudied and inaccessible to humans underground. It's the underworld of San Antonio. So Satan, I don't know what discussions led them to put that name on it, but it's pretty cool they did, I think. All the way back in your days as an undergrad student in ichthyology studying this stuff, you were really drawn to the blind catfishes. I'm curious if you can remember the first time that you ever stumbled upon one of these in the wild, and if you can recollect that story to us. No, actually, it wasn't in the wild. I had experience with these things well before I went looking for them in the wild. So I remember when I came and interviewed for my job and people, of course, were asking, well, what research would you do? And these blind cats were high on my list. Everybody knew that I was interested in those when I came here. And the guy in the office right next door was a cave invertebrate biologist. And so he hooked me up with all these cavers that were interested. There's a huge community of Austin cavers that go to Mexico all the time. And so word got out that Hendrickson was looking for these blind cats and please help him out. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, one day, probably within my first year shortly after that of being in Austin, I go in my office one day and there's this icebox sitting right in front of my office door. Mm-hmm. And I open the lid and here's half a dozen blind catfish swimming around oh, in wow. it. Huh. <laughs> and some cavers had been in Mexico and they remembered and they boxed these things up and drove them up and put them on my doorstep, literally. That's awesome. 
So that's wow. what started the live colony and what really got me motivated to go after the ones in Mexico, basically. So of course, if I had them, I could study them in the lab and that helped open doors to funding for the expeditions and stuff like that. That's great. So That's an awesome gift to just walk into. <laughs> it was. Yeah, it was really pretty amazing. Yeah. Could you help us imagine what it would be like to be a blind cat and what life is like in an aquifer deep down below? Good question. That's a good way to start this out. Uh, we know now from some recent molecular studies on a couple of them anyways, that they've been blind for probably 30, 40 million years living down in these aquifers. They lost their eyes long ago. So if you just imagine being blind from birth, basically, and living in a totally sightless environment, that's a start. And if you were down there for millions and millions of years, all of your other senses would be fine-tuned to re-emplace what vision would normally give you, right? They have incredibly sensitive detectors of vibrations, of sound, and chemical taste and smell-like senses, that sort of thing. All of that is hyper emphasized in all of these blind critters. So there's a lot of evolutionary studies interested in these things because they're basic laboratories where we can explore evolution of all of these different characters having to do with being underground. Would you be able to describe what exactly these fish look like for folks who haven't seen maybe a catfish or haven't seen these types of cave fishes before? Yeah, yeah. So basically, the very first specimens were recognized as catfish, right? They have the typical barbels, the uncanny things of, that catfishes have, especially Satan anyways. They're quite obvious on Satan, not so much on Trogoglanus. And Trogoglanus has this bizarre mouth unlike any other catfish. But in that way, they look like catfish. They don't have obvious scales, which is also like catfishes, right? At least the families we're talking about. So a very smooth skin. They're completely depigmented. Basically, pigments on the surface are there to pr protect things from sunburn and stuff like that, right? So when they went underground, there was no need for any kind of pigmentation. And there's, you know, it's not used for in breeding or anything. There's no visibility. So they've long ago lost all pigmentation. So fresh in life, they come up looking quite pink, basically. Their skin is translucent, and you can see the blood right through them. But you can see the eggs in females. So oh, as wow. they start to mature, you can see these great big eggs. They just pretty much look like very bleached out little catfishes. I think it's really cool how this demonstrates the biological cost of things like yep. eyes and melanin, yeah. things like that, that we take for granted. As soon as you go out and you don't need them, producing that stuff, not only is it not necessary, it's detrimental, but just gets forced out of the gene pool. So I think that's exactly. really neat, just a little insight. No, yeah, you're completely right. And that whole process of adapting to caves has been very well documented in several other fish systems that have invaded caves. Wow. So they become evolutionary models for a lot of adaptation sorts of things like that. I know fish don't have huge brains on them, but I assume mm -hmm. that there's like an area that's specific, like a, a kind of corollary to the optic lobes and stuff that we got. Has anyone looked at the brains to see how those might change in cave fishes? Actually, yeah, there was an early study that looked at both Trogoglanus and Satan in that regards. They did a lot of sectioning of skulls and wow. demonstrated that, for example, the optic lobes are reduced, as you would expect. 
And then the olfactory lobes and all those sorts of things that have to do with hearing and smell and taste Mm -hmm. and all that are much larger. So they've been hypertrophied basically compared to all the other lobes of the brain that are irrelevant now that vision is gone. That's awesome. If you were to look at the skull of one of these fishes, what does the area where the eyes used to be look like? Like, How has it changed? Is there any remnant kind of evidence of eyes being there? Uh, There's still remnants of the eyes. In fact, there's been a lot of developmental studies of the remnant eyes in these things. And in these species, they're very much remnants. They're totally dysfunctional. But if you look close enough, you can find that remnant eye. So they're not absolutely completely gone, but they're just tiny little things that are almost non-existent. Yeah. Cool. And are these guys, in terms of searching for food, like is that their primary thing they're doing is trying to find food down in there? One would guess, obviously, they they have to live. So Satan is the top predator in this system. It's like the uh, bald eagle of surface environments, if you want to think of it that way. So There's not much energy underground, right? You lose all the solar energy input, all that sort of thing. This ecosystem it lives in, though, is hyper-diverse for a cave ecosystem. There are over 100 different species of invertebrates that live down there with these two fishes. Wow. So that's what Satan is preying on. And it's probably preying on the other catfish, which is the toothless blind cat, Frogoglanus pattersoni. It's an interesting one in that ecologically, it's at the other end of the food web. This one is the one that's apparently eating uh, bacterial production. The aquifer, it's based on a chemoautolithotrophic system. In this case, it's two different water bodies. There's fresh water that comes in from the Texas Hill Country, goes underground, and flows under San Antonio, where it comes up against a saline sulfurous water body that extends out to the southeast, deep underground. And where those two come together, you get a lot of chemical stuff going on, different water qualities, and it eats away the limestone. That's the lithotrophic part of it, right? So there's a huge bacterial community that's very understudied that lives down there in that zone that is literally living off the limestone. And Trogoglanus has this crazy mouth that's adapted. It's a sucker-like mouth. It has no teeth, but it grazes that bacterial mat. So that's what it's feeding on. That's cool. I'm curious. I know it's, you're looking like 40, 50 million years ago, but what theories have been proposed about how these fish got down into the aquifers in the first place? Well, you think about catfish, they're nocturnal right? Almost all catfishes are mostly nocturnal. So they're out at night. They're on the surface adapted to having senses that work in the darkness. So they're sort of predisposed to going into caves. And almost all catfishes, at least in North America, utilize cavities in the bank or whatever for nesting at least and that sort of thing. And even the surface species often extend far into caves. So just the, their lifestyle predisposed them to a life in the darkness. So when these aquifers started evolving, they were exploring those caves, and pretty soon they ended up way down there. Okay. And how far down are these guys? They're pretty far down, aren't they? They are. They're like a thousand feet plus down. Okay. So oh, wow. way down there. Yeah. So we've talked about Satan, the wide mouth. We've talked about the toothless, but we've got a third one. <laughs> 
the one you're talking about there is the Mexican blind cat. I think it was either in my fisheries management class or maybe my ichthyology class that I first heard about the blind catfishes. And they just got my attention way back then when I was an undergraduate. Many years go by and I score this job in Texas and I'm much closer to Mexico. I had been working for my dissertation in Mexico and I knew about that blind cat. And one of the first things I did was get some funding to go chasing them. And we found them in a whole bunch of new places, great project, expeditionary work going into all these caves, searching for these things, and uh, greatly expanded their distribution and got them right up almost into Texas. And then the hydrologist later studying border aquifers determined that that aquifer was not just a Mexican aquifer. It extends under the border into Texas. So it's an internationally shared aquifer. We knew that some of the species of isopods and other critters, other invertebrates we're finding were in both Texas and Mexico. And so we anticipated that this blind cat might actually be in Texas. And when we got a chance to start snooping around in caves on the Amistad National Recreation Area with some Park Service funding, we were thinking, hot damn, here's our chance. Maybe we're going to find it finally. Sure enough, they turned up in Texas. And so we added a new species to the Texas fauna then. That's super cool. Yeah. How are the different ways that you're accessing the aquifer? You mentioned perhaps going in to caves. That sounds really cool. There's huge differences depending on the species. These two in San Antonio are just whole world different from the ones in Mexico. The Mexican blind cat is not in such a deep aquifer. There are at least two or maybe three places where you could, with some luck, find them actually on the surface and just walk up to a, a pool in a little bit of a cave and scoop them out. But those are really rare. Most of them, the area is karst and you get these interesting sotanos. They're sinkholes. They're kind of like the cenotes of Yucatan. But these are deep. The water's way down there. You, you go down into sort of a funnel at the top and then you get on rope and you drop probably 30, 40 meters, some of them up to 100 meters, just a straight drop propelling down. And down there, you find these streams that are flowing through these little caves. You can typically stand up for a while, you explore them, and then you'll have to dive under a low shelf and crawl around for a while. And then you come back up in the high ceiling again. You can tell that they flood massively, just like the surface streams in the area do. You get these big rainstorms. And they find their way underground. And underground, the floods are amplified because they can't spread out, right? They just go up. So you drop into these holes in the ground and you start looking and there's mud you know, 20 meters up on the walls. Oh. And you go, whoa, man, I definitely don't want to be here in the rain. You know? no. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's kind of spooky. But once you get down there, if it's not the rainy season, there are nice clear streams. You can see the blind cats swimming around. They're quite easy to scoop ah. up. That's super cool. But then compare that to San Antonio, the habitat of the blind cats in that aquifer is completely inaccessible to humans. The only way we know that the catfishes are down there is because long about 1900, San Antonio at that time was running out of water and somebody put in these wells and they're actually artesian wells. They're under pressure. So you punch a hole in the earth and boom, water comes spraying up. It's like a gusher. And some of those very first gushers spit out blind catfishes. And so uh, I think the first one, what was the first described in 1919, that was a gusher that just spit out some trochoglannus and perhaps Satan. People weren't looking for them, but some just happened to find their way to scientists or into museums. But that's the only way down into those habitats where the catfish live would be through those wells. 
And not only would the pressure be way beyond what scuba divers could tolerate, the wells just simply aren't big enough to get a a human-sized object down. The, The other big problem is access to those wells. The city of San Antonio had been completely dependent on aquifer water for many decades. And then in the 1990s, they were sued by a conservation group concerned about endangered species that were dependent on natural spring flows coming from this same water that would pass through the blind cat's habitat and then surface a little ways north of San Antonio. So the Supreme Court said, you have to assure that aquifer is never going to drop below X level because below that level, there's not going to be enough flow for these endangered spring fishes. We understood it, but it was really frustrating. But back then, it was understandable because the only way we have specimens of these things is either by them coming up naturally through the artesian flows, but then those artesian flows started to go away as the water aquifer was dropped. And so that wasn't happening anymore. And so the only way to get these things was to put nets over these big well outlets. You can't sample the old way for specimens anymore. So uh, that's been a huge impediment. The last specimen of Satan was taken in 1984. So we don't know if it's extinct down there or just very rare, or maybe other wells still have them. Anyways. You guys using eDNA? So basically, when eDNA started to catch on, it's like, well, bingo, this would require almost no water. eDNA being environmental DNA for people listening. Uh, Yeah, thanks, thanks. Basically, all organisms slough off DNA all the time. In an aquatic systems, that's carried by the water. So you just take a small water sample, you filter out the eDNA, extract it, sequence it. And if you're lucky in this case, well, known sequences that say, oh, bingo, there are blind cats Satan's down there. Satan's down there. Yep. Nice. Well, Satan's the exception though. <laughs> we don't have DNA of it yet. So we don't have a target. Oh, true, true. So Satan is still a, a shot in the dark until we get huh. a, another specimen from which we can get DNA, or we finally figure out how to get good DNA out of formal and preserved specimens, we won't have a known for Satan. Whereas we finally did get some fresh specimens of trogoglanus, and we've got the whole mitogenome of trogoglanus now. So we have those fixed targets, and we will be able to say, oh yeah, there is trogoglanus down there. Same with the Mexican blind cat, we have mitogenomes from those two. So we're well set for doing DNA, except for Satan. Do you have any messages for landowners or folks with wells that I guess could maybe lead to more productive engagement with it? Yeah, we did get some support to get serious finally about trying to get permission to sample wells for eDNA specifically. That's what got this all rolling was now our ability to use smaller water samples. There are a lot of privately owned wells. Uh, We'll be approaching the San Antonio water system as well for permission to sample their wells. The Texas Water Development Board has a database of wells online, and so we can map all of the known locations for both of the San Antonio blind cats, pick out all the wells that are in relatively close proximity to those and that are pretty much equally as deep. So we can kind of filter that database down into a prioritized list of wells that look likely to have these blind cats. Mm -hmm. So we'll be working with some nonprofit collaborators that are going to help us try to start contacting well owners to see if they'll allow us to take just small samples of water for eDNA. You mentioned that they're keeping a 
population of these at the San Antonio Zoo. I imagine when you're dealing with a fish that's so rare, it can be hard to figure out the husbandry and stuff for it. Are these a kind of hardy species or have they had issues with that? No, they've had pretty good luck there. And then I had them in my lab for decades before I gave them to the San Antonio Zoo. Okay. This is the Mexican blind cat we're talking about now, it should be clear. They were difficult to start with. We had problems with infections. They seemed very susceptible to abrasion in transport from the field. So by the time you got them to the lab, they would have surface infections that were hard to cure. Finally found an antibiotic that worked quite well for that. And then once established in the aquaria, I had multiple heart attacks, basically. I'd walk into the lab and find them floating belly up. That's just what they do sometimes. <laughs> they float around and they would just be absolutely, totally motionless, just floating around looking absolutely dead. But they weren't. It took just the slightest tap on the glass or something, boom, they're wide they're awake and relaxing. swimming around looking normal. Yeah, they're just <laughs> kicked back and then they'll, they'll lay on the bottom too, completely belly up. I guess if you're in a kind of predatorless environment, you don't really need to be worrying about sleeping and sleeping positions and all that and where you're at. Exactly. Just all kinds of very unusual sorts of behaviors that it took me <laughs> ages to get used to. And then feeding them was never very hard, though. They pretty much ate whatever I would throw at them. And so that was convenient. But it's also what you would expect down there. Basically, that species is clearly affected by floods. And it's probably a boom or bust type yeah. thing where floods bring in all kinds of surface nutrients and they get fat. And then the stream starts drying up and it might be years before the next flood comes along, right? So uh, they seem very well adapted to starvation. In fact, in my lab, some of them live for 44 months without being fed. Dang. Wow. And how long safe. can they live? Did you say how long? It's a long time, it sounds like. One of those that I collected in 1997 as an adult still lives today in the San Antonio Zoo. Wow. So we have no clue what lifespan might be in these things, but I wouldn't be surprised But what it's 50, maybe even 100 years, you know. Wow. Uh, that's another thing that's been well documented in cave organisms is generally much longer lifespans than their surface relatives. No sun exposure. Yeah, that and just uh, low energy diet and all these adaptations to living in a low energy world, just uh, very low metabolic rates, all that kind of thing. Very cool. Yeah. I have a lot of family down in Texas, and so I know that Texans tend to be a pretty prideful bunch. I saw that out in Del Rio, they got a mural going up that yeah. had that dedicated to these new Mexican blind cats they were found. So I'm curious what went into making that mural, and if you're seeing any changes uh, regarding people's appreciation for these species, or if you're not, what you might suggest to get people excited about them, because they're obviously just super fascinating. Yeah, that Del Rio mural is really cool. It was really nice to see that happen. And the way it came about, basically, was we were starting to publicize our work with the Mexican blind cat. My colleague at the zoo and I, we'd been doing a lot of caving in Mexico. So we got a, a bunch of Mexican collaborators and us together, and we formed this little group called the Mexican blind cat working group. And uh, so we started to get a little bit of publicity with that. And then the artist that did that mural was actually hired by one of the conservation groups to do projects like that around the country, highlighting endangered species. Oh. And somehow they came up with the idea of doing the blind cat. Mm. 
I wanted to point out to you, but I actually hooked up with a sound artist who uh, got interested in this system. Basically, it looks like he's going to help us get some hydrophones down into some of these deep monitoring wells and just leave them there listening because it's totally relevant to our work. Most or many, anyways, ictalurid catfish, which these are, produce sounds, usually in conjunction with breeding and nesting and uh, territoriality, that sort of thing. So we're going to start dropping hydrophones down into these wells sometime and just letting them run for a while yeah. and then sending them off to the ornithology lab at Cornell. They're good at filtering sounds of organisms out from background noise. And they've done quite a bit of marine fish work. So they're keen to listen to any recordings we get. And maybe the first detection of the blind cats, other than by specimens or eDNA, could well be a sound that we can say, you know, that sure sounds like the sound of such and such bullhead or something. Uh, I was going to ask cool. you, are you uh, able to make a catfish sound for us for the audience? <laughs> Let's hear it. So take channel catfish. That's probably the most commonly caught catfish, right? Everybody catches channel catfish and they skin them and fry them up, right? And if you have a channel catfish on the hook and you're holding it there, you'll see its pectoral spines doing this number. Can you see me there? He's <laughs> flapping yeah. his uh, Yeah, flapping of... my wings, my pectoral spines. <laughs> At the base of those spines are these ridges that produce this sound kind of a that's a pretty good impression. <laughs> this has been fascinating conversation. Really appreciate it. Well, good. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, I've yeah. really enjoyed it. I can talk about these things forever, obviously. And uh, yeah, it's good to talk more to other people about them too. So yeah. So Texas may not be the biggest state. Alaska is, but they sure do have the coolest aquifer. So get out there and enjoy all the fish, including Satan and all the blankets. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>